on the back of your bulletin, things you should read. Josh and Val had their baby. Pretty cool, huh? And the Ferrises aren't here. Something about being new grandparents. They're always looking for an excuse to skip church. He's one of our elders, by the way. So, no, we've been praying for them as well. Uh, we see DCC Family Night coming up. Pay attention to that. Faith Day at the Rockies. There's a sign-up out there. You can go and get your name on those. The one at the top, the Messianic Passover Seder Celebration, we're going to finish the season of Lent on Good Friday with the Seder Celebration, a Passover dinner. <clears throat> so you're invited to that. It's a limited number. Uh, you can go ahead and start signing up out at the Welcome Center uh, we encourage you to come for that. It, uh, it's just a way to cap off our time of discussing sin. That's what we're talking about and um, in preparation. So that week is a very good week. If you want to really get some time focusing on uh, and, you know, kind of condensing it all, what Christ did. Sunday is Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. And then we have Monday, Thursday, we have a contemplative service here. Good Friday, Passover dinner. And then Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday. We're going to celebrate what Christ did. Okay, I want to call attention to it. Open it up to the inside where it says Caring Community. <clears throat> Caring Community. This is a list of the, some of the prayer requests and, uh, that we put out. And I just want to encourage you to take this home with you and pray for these people. They are very encouraged. I know I talk to the ones that we pray for. I bring it up to them that... If, especially if I pray for them out loud, I let them know that we did that. And the people are always very encouraged. It's such an honor to lift one another up in our struggles. I mean, you've heard me say before, the Holy Spirit moves around our group. And, and you never know from week to week who's going to need extra grace. You just don't know that. And so your time will come. And we'll be praying for you. So pray for these people. In fact, I'd like to stop and take a moment and just lift up some of these right now. Father, we do lift up... Uh, Bruce Miles and his family. Pastor Miles has been faithful for so long. The Lord has been through so much. And now, Father, uh, barring your intervention, his days are very, uh, very numbered. So, God, we do pray for him and his family for grace, that you would show him miraculous healing. Lord, step in one more time, if you've, as you've done with his family, and heal him. And, Lord, we continue to lift up Julia White. I pray for her uh, spinal pain to lessen and her fatigue, and continue to give her endurance, and her parents and family as they walk beside her and stand with her. God, show them grace. Um, teach them, Lord, something about you through this experience that they haven't known before. Show them how good you are. And Father, there's so many other names on this list, and many that aren't on the list, and we pray for them as well. Strength and peace for our whole community. And Father, we continue to lift up our government and our country right now during very turbulent times. Pray for wisdom for our president and our Congress and, Lord, all of the leaders all the way down to our, to our uh, town council members and mayors and uh, fire chief and just all the ones that are serving to either protect us, make good decisions for us. Lord, you've told us to pray for wisdom and, and for peace for them, and we are praying for that. It is a turbulent time, Lord, now in our country's life and history, and we need your help. So help us, Lord, to come together to uh, figure out how to solve some of these problems. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for being so kind to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
Who am I? You don't really know. You think you do. You think you know me because you've seen me for three and a half years, but you don't really know who I am. No one knows the truth about my own sinfulness, the things I wrestle with and struggle with. I keep them a secret. Sometimes I wonder if God even knows. And what does he think about it? I like to hide. I like you only knowing a part of me. That way you'll think well of me. So if I pretend, then you'll think well of me. And then you won't know the truth. These are replicas of two of the Greek masks, comedy and tragedy, used going back to uh, 700 B.C. In the Greek theater, it's one of the ways they taught morals. One of the ways they made points was to wear masks. They wore masks for several reasons. The actors appeared and could reappear in different roles It allowed the actors to hide their identity. That's what a mask does. It allows the actor to hide their identity. They had a whole bunch of other masks other than those to create impact. Some were designed to frighten the people. Very terrifying. Some were designed to make them laugh. But masks hide us, don't they? We've been in a series series called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It's a discussion of sin. Uh, one of the persons asked before the very first Sunday of the series, this is going to be a Hellfire Damnation series. And I said, you know, at Dallas Seminary, they didn't teach me that style. I don't think I have a Hellfire Damnation bone in my body. I'm more interested in getting you to think through the repercussions of sin because it's something that we, we whitewash today. Something we downplay. It's something that we ignore And so I think it's important for each of us to really grasp what's going on. So look where we've come in our journey so far. The very first Sunday we talked about sin leads to the loss of shalom. Shalom is that peace, that wellness, the complete wholeness of the person that God created us for. That comes from being in community, but sin destroys that. It destroys the inside of us like cancer, and it destroys the community as well. The second week, Mark talked about corruption of the soul, that sin causes the soul to become polluted. It just fills up. That led to the third Sunday where we talked about disintegration of the spirit, how our our spirit, in a sense, it disintegrates unless we cleanse it, and it it lives itself out in community. Marriages, for example, split apart. That's disintegration. Disintegration. Relationships fracture, whole communities fracture. Look where our nation is today. It's, a, it's amazing to me where we are today. In my lifetime, I've never seen this, what I'm seeing right now. That's what sin does. Today, as we move further into our discussion of sin, not the way it's supposed to be, we discuss mass in the nature of both hiding from others, which is a key part of wearing a mask, and holding each other to different standards. 
which is another part of wearing a mask, and the destructiveness that that brings. Let's look at the very first example of hiding. It's in Genesis 3, what we refer to as the fall. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. This is the first example of hiding, I believe, in human history. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, remember last week, I asked the question, why is the one thing that God tried to protect us from the knowledge of good and evil? Why that? And we said last week, it's because you're not created to know that. That's a divine prerogative. And our very best day, we struggle to do that well. You know why? Because to exercise that knowledge requires omniscience. I don't know your motives. I don't know your circumstances. It's really challenging for us to exercise it well. And yet we have to, don't we? We'll come back to that. So she saw it was desirable, so she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made a covering for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But, uh, but the Lord called out to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is a story of the greatest human dignity possible. God did the most amazing thing. He created us and gave us a choice. Let me say it a different way. He created us and gave us the choice. This is a story. Whether you believe it's mythological or not, I don't. But whether you do, it's still a statement about human dignity that God allowed us to decide. So the man, like all men who are sinful, the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me and I ate it. 32 years I've been trying to blame Nance. Still not getting very far, but I'm working on it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the servant deceived me and I ate. This changed everything, and it captures our world today. Verse 10 identifies three very significant changes that happened, okay? This is how he responded, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. The very first thing we learn because of sin is that he expressed, they expressed an incorrect emotion. Very first thing that happened, they became afraid of God. I don't know what it was like to not be afraid of God and then to be afraid of God. I don't know what that transition was like, but they do. So the very first thing is they had the wrong emotion. Then the second thing, he says, I was afraid because I was naked. They had an incorrect view of reality. I'm reading a book by Oz Guinness called Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. Here's what he says about that. By the end of this little exchange, Eve's trust was no longer absolute and implicit, a perfect match with the truth God had spoken. Instead, she had risen to the bait, first to suspect God, then to put herself forward as the arbiter between God's word and the serpent's word, and to be a deciding, independent viewpoint, incapable of judging between them. 
I mean, capable of judging. That's what she thought. That's what sin does. It places us between good and evil. It makes us the arbiter. The one thing that we're not created for. Intoxicated by the heady freedom of this position, she decides there could be no harm in eating the fruit she was forbidden to eat. Surely she needed to experiment in order to know and so be able to decide between God's word and the serpent's. Without stating it so baldly in her words, her action says that she is right and God is wrong. His word can be ignored with impunity. Were Adam and Eve aware of what they were doing? The thrust of the biblical account of the fall is powerful. Their disobedience entailed two things that are now characteristic of all of us as humans. On the one hand, for each of us, sin is the claim to the right to myself. Sin is the claim to the right to myself and so to my way of seeing things. On the other hand, sin is the deliberate repudiation of God and truth of his way of seeing things. If my way of seeing things is decisive and correct, which sin makes me think it is, anyone who differs from me is wrong by definition, including God. Including God. So they had an incorrect view of reality. The third thing is that they resorted to inappropriate strategies. So I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Two strategies that they developed from here on out, which, which every one of you is guilty of. They hid. There's the mask. And they began to blame others. That's what sin does. Ever since this day, we all, 100% of us, do the same thing. We hide and we point the fingers at others. So what does it look like in our world today? Well, sin leads to, and we've said this several times, leads to an unreal view of reality. To begin, in order for evil to do its worst, this is a real basic concept about sin, in order for evil or sin to do its worst, it needs to look its best. If you saw it for what it really was, you wouldn't do it. I don't know of a drug addict that became a drug addict because they said, that's what I want to be. No, they're lured into it. Deception. In order for sin and evil to do its worst, it needs to look its best. Either way, we learn how to present something falsely and then exert ourselves to make the presentation credible. There's a mask. I want you to know what I want you to know. In other words, we begin to act as hypocrites. The Bible has a lot to say about hypocrites. Vices begin to masquerade as virtues. For example, lust masquerades as love. Sadism masquerades as discipline. Envy masquerades as righteous indignation. Domestic tyranny is the home, masquerades as parental concern. The reasons for this are various. Sometimes it's shame. Sometimes it's mental health issues. I understand that. Sometimes it's just good old-fashioned evil. The desire to sin with no real appreciation for the consequences. But you know what? We had a good teacher. 
Second Corinthians tells us that Satan masquerades as the angel of light. He has to do this. He has to do it merely to look plausible. It's an ironic thing to me that he must appeal to our God-given created desire for goodness in order to win his way. That's all he can win his way. It's to appeal to our God-created desire for goodness and to deceive us. What we learn from him is that it is extremely difficult, challenging, perhaps impossible, to distinguish sin from righteousness. They often look similar. Sometimes they're very close. As a result, we work very hard to keep up appearances and we begin to wear masks so that no one can see the truth. We hide. When masks are worn, two things happen. The first one is that we begin to feel shame about our own sin and therefore we begin to tolerate it in our own lives. We enter into this this world where We tolerate it, we explore it, we justify it, we refuse to take responsibility for it all the time, feeling shame for it. We begin to get addicted to it. We're going to talk about that next week, actually. We even lose our ability to notice it. Much has been written about this part of Mass. In fact, I have a book to recommend to you. It's called The Cure. Um, The Cure, what if God isn't who you think he is and neither are you? It's a great little book dealing with the whole question of shame. It's worth reading. So that's the first thing. We begin to feel shame about our sin and therefore begin to tolerate it in our lives. I'm not going to say much more about that. There's plenty, plenty of writings and good help out there to, to help you work through that. But that leads to a judgmental attitude toward others who struggle with sin. That's the next logical place to go. We create a judgmental attitude. We become critical and intolerant of others while comfortable with our own sin. So, I may be lusting after a woman, but that's not near as bad as this person who's sleeping with a woman. See how that works? So sin takes on this very unbiblical idea. Sin is whatever you're doing that's worse than whatever I'm doing. And we begin to justify ourselves and we begin to condemn others. In other words, we act toward others in very hypocritical ways. All of this can be summed up with the term self-deception. You see, we begin to pull the wool over our own eyes. That's what happens. We begin to pull the wool over our own eyes. For example, this is what happens in marriages and good relationships in the middle of conflict. We think we have an accurate memory of all that's happened. It's simply not true. Nancy and I have been married 32 years. Countless times we've gone back and reviewed something in the past. And we are both convinced we have an accurate view and we're both, we disagree. I know that hasn't happened to any of you. In a book on the psychology of self-deception entitled Vital Lies, Simple Truths, Daniel Goldman tells the story of John Dean, President Nixon's counsel, and a central figure in the Watergate scandal. Some of you are old enough to have walked through that. Dean's testimony before the Senate Watergate Committee was lengthy, articulate, and remarkably detailed. Dean amazed the committee members with his ability to remember precisely who said what, to remember it verbatim, and to do this after many intervening months. The trouble was, is that when the Watergate tapes were finally released and played for the committee, Dean's testimony turned out to be mostly wishful memory. Mostly wishful memory. 
Like many of us, Dean had remembered a lot of stuff that hadn't happened. Now listen to this next sentence because this applies to you. Not surprisingly, most of his mistakes and distortions of recall had the effect of placing him in a much more favorable light than the one in which he actually stood. We have a distorted view of the past. That's called sin. That's what sin is all about. Deception. No, this isn't about confronting you. This is about helping you wrestle with the true destructive nature of sin. I've said several times in this series, think of it as, here I am, moving toward the image of Christ. That means as I move toward Christ, I'm becoming a better and better human, more generous, more caring, more loving, more compassionate, more forgiving, all of that. And if I'm not moving, because of the Spirit, I'm designed to move. If I'm not moving, I've come up against sin. Sin is an obstacle that keeps us from moving. That's the best way to think about sin, I believe. So the result of all this is that we begin to judge others. Christ had something to say about that in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, I love this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Christ says something very simple. Do not judge. This is a great text to take Greek students to. It's only two words. It's very simple. No controversy. Do not judge. That's what it says. Do not judge. Why? The second part of the sentence. Or you too will be judged. Do not judge or you too will be judged. You see, verse 2, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you judge, and sometimes you have to, parents... Law enforcement, counselors, pastors, Christian friends in each other's lives. Sometimes you have to make an assessment, a judgment. If you do that, be willing to submit yourself to the same standard. It's hard to do. Just ask yourself, would I be willing to go through what I'm about to put this person through? If the role is reversed. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to that huge plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's this plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, we become self-deceived moralists. That's what it means. That's what sin does to us when we put on masks. We become self-deceived moralists. I know better what's good for you. And by the way, I'm okay. We're all guilty of it. Every person sitting in this room. In Romans chapter 2... Paul addresses this. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. Okay, now think about this. If you've ever passed judgment on someone else, we're talking to you. 
Okay? I'd ask you if you've never done that to raise your hand, but then I wouldn't want to make you lie. <laughs> By the way, the goals in this, in this series are not to make you feel guilty. I don't have to do that. Holy Spirit can do a fine job on his own. It's really not it. The goal is not to confront. The goal is to get you to really think through with me on this journey of how destructive sin can be and how deceptive sin can be for us to think it's not a problem. It is a problem. So here's his words. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Why, it sounds like Jesus is teaching, doesn't it? At whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You see, if somebody is sleeping with a person and I'm only lusting after a person, Jesus said, if I lust after a person, I've already committed adultery. It's already done. It's equal. You're doing the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God bases his judgments on truth. What do we base ours on? Self-deception. That's what we base it on. So when you, a mere human being, I love it, I just got contrasted with God. God evaluates your sin based on truth. I only can evaluate it based on self-deception. That's why we weren't created to know the knowledge of good and evil. I don't have omniscience. I don't. One of the classes I've taught over the years is um, Theological and Philosophical Foundations for Counseling. And one of the things we talk about in there is when you begin to form an opinion about somebody, hold it very loosely and, and be prepared to be wrong. In fact, hope that you're wrong. Always give them the benefit of the doubt. Hold your opinion of each other loosely because... Now that we know, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Do you think you will? You'll be judged as well. That's coming. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? You see, that's how God treats sinners. We're going to see that in a minute. Kindness, forbearance, and patience. And if you don't, you're showing contempt for God's very strategy. You realize that the day you came to know him, he already knows the worst sin you're going to commit. We have this picture of God up there somehow wringing his hands. It's not true. He's very comfortable with your sin. He knows exactly how to help you whether it's punishment, discipline, whatever it is. He knows how to do it. It's kind of like when you've had several children. We've had four. By the time you get to number four, you finally start to get the hang of it, and then they're out of the house and gone, right? Along come the grandkids, and you say, hey, just relax. You have much more confidence. God is not surprised by your sin. Issues with you, not with him. If he's omniscient the day he saved you, he already knew what you are going to do. By his grace... I hope my worst sins are behind me. But he's not surprised. So he knows how to show patience. Our mass prevent us 
from seeing true reality and we become self-deceived moralists. You'll notice that Paul switches from they to you in verse 32 of chapter 1. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. He switches from they to you. The goal here is not confrontation. What he's attempting to do is personalize this message so that he can walk with them through the consequences of passing judgment. The very thing I'm trying to do with you, to get you to grasp the seriousness of sin. Don't be deceived. It is highly destructive in every way you can measure. There is no sin that does not affect you and the people in which you're in relationship. None. Do not be deceived. Paul is explaining for the benefit of his audience that people who know what God requires but do not carry it out are left exposed to the righteous judgment of God. Well, how how does he start chapter 2? You therefore have no excuse. He's pulling us back to chapter 1. Now, he just said they're doing these vile things. By the way, if you want to know if you have sin in your life, just read second half of chapter 1. I think every sin in the book is listed here. My goodness. And every one of you is guilty. Every one of you is going to find yourself in chapter 1 in that story. We expect him to focus on the sinfulness, but he doesn't. He immediately shifts to our judgmental attitudes. That's astounding that that's where he goes. He shifts on the, the focus to those who judge others. But this is in keeping with his argument. You see, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The good news. What's the good news? The fantastic news that God loves us so much. He's doing everything possible short of violating our free will to get us to turn to him because he knows what's best for us. But he doesn't say what that is. He just says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the good news. It has the power of salvation. You expect him to say, here's what the gospel is. But he doesn't do that. He immediately says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against heaven from all godlessness and wickedness of people. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Have you seen how horrible this world is? That's really what he does. How sinful it is. So rather than explain what the gospel is, he first draws you in by showing you how evil sin is. Every sin you can imagine Every sin is in this list, chapter 1. And when he gets done with chapter 1, he's pretty much decimated the whole human race. You're all guilty. You'll all find yourself in there. Then you expect him to say much more about that, but he doesn't. You, therefore, have no excuse. You pass judgment on someone else. So he moves from this, he's moving down this this trail. Let me tell you about the good news, how wonderful it is. But first, I got to tell you, every one of you is a sinner. Now, the people that are receiving this letter in Rome, they're going, yeah, those people are pretty... Pretty bad. In fact, I can think of, uh, except for that one that I'm guilty of, let me cross that one out. But I can think of other people that fill this, you know. Rob, I, I know you're in this list. Yeah. Yeah. Last week it was Lauren, but he's not sitting out there, so, you know. <laughs> ben, Heidi, sorry you're in this list. Okay. So you can see, pointing the fingers, okay. Last week, I got to tell on you, Wendy. After the sermon last week, Wendy comes up to me. She goes, that sermon was so perfect. It was meant for me. And I go, oh gosh, you just did what I said you're going to do. The people that don't need it are the ones that come up and say that was meant for me. And the people that do need it come up and say, that was a great sermon. He really needed to hear that. (laughs) So he starts with the sinfulness of humanity. And then he moves to the moralist. 
And all of a sudden you get a little uncomfortable because that's us. You know, I'm not back here practicing murder. But I am here practicing judgment. It gets a little more uncomfortable. Okay? Ooh. Maybe he's talking about, I hope he's not talking about me. Lauren is over there. You guys having marital issues? We can do counseling afterwards. <laughs> then from there, in chapter 2, verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, he moves to the Jews. We know at this time the Jews really looked down on the Gentiles. And Jews are in the church in Rome as well. But wait a minute, we have the law. It doesn't matter. You're just as guilty. And then he stuns us in chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. All of a sudden now, he's talking about us. We find ourselves in this, as he sweeps up all of humanity together, we find ourselves on an equal playing field where we are all guilty and we are all engaged in sin. That's the reality. God bases his judgment on truth. We base it on self-deception. And the truth is, it's an equal playing field. Everything you do is just as bad as what I do. Or let me reverse it. Everything I do is just as bad as what you do. His answer is in chapter 3, verse 21, to this mess. Now he gets to the gospel. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, his goodness, his desire to make things right, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. If you're here in the group today and you're not sure where you stand, where your beliefs are with Jesus, let me just remind you, you have a Savior. Let's be very clear. You have a Savior. His name is Jesus. He's not out to hurt you. He's out to redeem you. He's not out to restrict and control you. He's out to help and protect you because he loves you enough to give his own life. For most of you that have already placed your faith in Jesus, you've moved beyond this. Now we're dealing with the question, what happens with ongoing sin? How do we resolve that? So what is the answer to these masks? That's the question that most of us are asking. Well, I have a couple of, couple of suggestions. First of all, the answer to the mass involves a willingness to drop the mask and to work towards a safer and transparent environment. A safer, that's key, if you don't feel safe, you're not about to talk. I'm so proud of some of you that have come to me and said, all right, let's talk. I struggle with lusts. I look at pornography. Now we know. Others of you, you haven't lived until somebody comes and sits down and says, I need to talk. I'm sleeping with another person. Okay? Now we know. Now we know. 
It's learning to drop the mask and create safety. Even if you feel unsafe talking to others, you can always feel safe talking to God. I'm going to read a verse out of Hebrews. It's really a very famous verse. It drives me absolutely crazy what we do with it in the uh, English Bible. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, the one about the Word of God is alive and active. You remember all that verse? Okay, it's verses, chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Right smack in the middle, we put a paragraph marker with an English subtext. Judy Deal started laughing in the first service because uh, she has the same training I do and she knows what I'm talking about. It's all one, it's all put together, run together. Listen to these words in Hebrews 4. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is a powerful word of God. It is able to work its way into the deepest parts of your soul, not for condemnation, but for life. As Peter says, we have the words of life. He says to Jesus, you have the words of life. Where would we go? That's what this book is all about. It's able to do that. Very next verse. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. You know what that says? You can't hide. Not from God. You can hide from me. and That's okay. I'm fine with that. The honest truth is I don't need to know your sins. If you need a confessor, I can help you. We've talked about it as elders. Every one of you deserves privacy. You don't need to bear all of your brokenness to everyone or to anyone. That's part of the community of faith is we love you the way you are. But if you need to work through something, what I care about is where are you in your walk with Jesus and what does it look like to move you one step closer toward the cross? In other words, how is sin keeping that from happening? But with God, everything you do is laid bare before him. He sees it. Now, most Christians don't get a lot of comfort out of this verse. This is not the verse they read at nighttime, you know, when they go to sleep. This isn't a verse they read when they've become convicted of sin. No, until you put it with the very next verse. What happens? What if? Just what if? I could play my entire soul up on the screen in front of you. And you saw the very worst things about me, and there are some bad things, and you love me anyway. I'd be terrified to do it. I wouldn't. But what if that would happen? Listen to the very next verse. Therefore, why do we separate it with an English subtext? Therefore, Since God knows everything, we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Don't give up. Don't give up. You're not alone. Hang in there. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Therefore, here's the second one, since God knows everything. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive condemnation and judgment. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. So that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in our time of need. God is the safest person to talk to. Because when you turn to God, you find mercy, grace, and help. So even if you don't feel comfortable talking to me, 
or one of your friends or a counselor, you can talk to God. He already knows. Bring the mask down. Quit pretending you, pretending. Those of you that have come forward and talked to me have found that whatever sin you are struggling with is not the point. I personally don't care whatever sin you're struggling with except to help you figure out how is that hurting you. It doesn't matter to me what it is. The second thing is that you must begin to think differently. In Romans 12, as he gets to the end of the book, he introduces commands for the first time. 11 chapters, and he finally tells you what to do about it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Put yourself out there for others. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the second thing is you have to start thinking differently. You really have to believe that God, He analyzes based on truth and you analyze based on self-deception. You have to believe it, even if you don't understand it. But it's far more than renewing the mind because the Bible knows nothing about changing your mind without changing your behavior. The rest of the book is all built on how to live differently. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, so much for positive thinking. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment, realistic thinking as Christian. And he goes on, verse 9, love, let love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. As you begin to change your mind and you learn to let the mask slip, you begin to put these other things in practice. And that's what happens. The soul is cleansed. So what's it going to be? It's your choice, not mine. I've said this to more than one of you. It's your marriage, not mine. I have the challenge on my own marriage. Nancy's great. But it's your marriage. It's not my marriage. I'm not going to put more energy into your marriage than you put into it. That's about as unhealthy as it gets. It's your life, not mine. It's your walk with the Lord, not mine. It's your faith, not mine. I already know mine. What's it going to be? You have a choice. Are you going to continue to wear a mask and pass judgment? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to learn to face reality, put others first, drop the mask. Even if it's only with God, that's a start. That raises a very fundamental question that we need to continue to wrestle with. What type of church do you want our church to be? That was one of the questions in my interview process with both the elders and the uh, transition team. You see, I was in in an interview with another church at the same time I was interviewing with this one. And I asked them that question. Do you want to be a church that welcomes people that are broken and sinners, sinful? Or do you want to be exclusivists? And they said, oh, no, no, we can't, can't let sinners into the church. They're serious. What they mean by that is you have to put on a mask to come into our church. You have to pretend. Well, I'm not there, am I? <laughs> I'm here. Once we answered that question, then I asked the elders a second question. <clears throat> How fast do you expect transformation to occur? If a person comes in and they're struggling with sin, how fast do you expect them to change? Are you going to give them an hour? 
You laugh when I say that. How about a day? How about a week? How about a month? How about a lifetime? If you ask an alcoholic, they won't ever tell you that they're no longer an alcoholic, will they? What will they say? They're a recovering alcoholic. That was important for me to ask the elders. Those, two of the, those are two of the very important questions in the interview process. Are you willing to be a church that opens its doors where they don't have to wear the mask? They can come in for who they are in all of their glory and sinfulness, because they have both, made in the image of God and broken people, and give them time. Redemption takes patience, and it takes a long time, doesn't it? What type of church do you want to be? I want to close with this question. I'm going to ask it now, and I'll come back to it before communion. Who in our group do you need to accept love, forgive, but first, in spite of their sinfulness? You see, I love you just the way you are. Honestly, sometimes your sinfulness is pretty intriguing to me. How in the world did you get yourself in that mess? <laughs> now, those aren't the words that come out over coffee. Well, sometimes they do, actually. <laughs> but who do you, right here, who do you need to put first in spite of their sinfulness? Love them for who they are. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for being a God who we can turn to and we actually do find grace, mercy, help, kindness, patience, forbearance, all those wonderful words that we often overlook in Scripture because we want to get to sin. But thank you for being a God who knows us so well that you're not surprised by us. Thank you for being omniscient and we're sorry that we are self-deceived. Forgive us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.